In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to talk about camp seating, first aid and first aid kits, keeping track of your speed on hikes, storing compasses, avoiding midges, unusual growths on leaves, and how to process ribwort plantain seeds. Welcome, welcome to episode 59 of Ask Paul Kirtley. And today I am out for a hike in a lovely part of the world. I'm just on the edge of the Cairngorm Mountains in Scotland in an area of uh, pine forest. Uh, it's very pleasant. Bit of uh, showery rain today. Um, hopefully it holds off long enough to record this session. Um, before I head back to where I'm staying. Um, it's funny, people say, oh, why is it always such wonderful weather where you go? How come you never record in the rain? How come you're never out in the rain? I am out in the rain a lot. I, I work outdoors a lot over the, over the summer in particular and into the autumn and being the British Isles, uh, we get our fair share of, of rain. Um, but rain and microphones and cameras don't mix very well so that's one of the reasons you don't generally see it raining on these uh, videos if you're watching on the video or hear it raining if you're listening on the podcast um, but uh, as i say it's just showers today so i have put the dry liner of my rucksack over the top of the camera and hopefully that'll keep most of the rain off and if there's any rustling on the audio, it's because I'm wearing my waterproof jacket because it is spitting a bit now. Right. Anyway, let's get into the meat of the episode. This is a question from Duncan. And his question is, um, I would like to ask a question about seating in camp. I suffer with my knees and I like to sit off the ground when I am in the woods. If there are no sizable tree trunks to sit on in the near vicinity, what ways would you suggest apart from sitting on the floor that I could make to keep me off the ground in a reasonable in reasonable comfort? I look forward to your reply. Keep up the great podcast. Regards, Duncan. Well, Duncan, yeah, you're not the only person who's got uh, sore knees or bad knees. Um, quite a few people I know um, who've come and done courses with me or have done various trips uh, I struggle with their knees at certain points, whether it's kneeling in a canoe, sitting on the ground, as you've mentioned, um, downhills, um, on hikes, you know, various different issues for various different people. And I guess you have to find a way to, to accommodate that. Um, in terms of sitting, clearly, as you've mentioned, logs are good to sit on. I'm sitting on a rock now, a mossy, moss covered rock i've got a little um sit mat like a bit of foam matting that i keep down the back of my uh, rucksack my day pack that i can pull out and sit on and that's so that i don't get a damp backside as much as anything but it does also keep 
some insulation there um, don't lose so much heat and it's also a bit more comfortable and that's something you could carry with you to put on various different things to sit on so you might be able to sit on rocks um, you might be able to sit on logs as you suggested you can construct uh, seating in a camp um, similar to how you might create a raised bed for a lean-to on my blog there is um, a couple of articles on lean-to shelters in the northern forest forget the shelter part just think about the raised bed that's something that's not too difficult to construct um, it's not something i would do if i was just staying somewhere overnight just for a seat but it'll give you some ideas a couple of smaller logs across between um, some components that build it up off the ground and that could be lumps of raised ground you could have uh, sort of here you've got different mounds you could span a couple of mounds across with some straight logs to get up off the ground and that's got the advantage of being up off the damp ground as well and um, more generally you could build uh, with like you build a stack of firewood you can build some logs up and then put logs across between two stacks that would be one way of creating a bench at the height that you wanted that you could sit on and that's pretty comfortable you can do that in snowy climates as well where you can basically compact the snow and then you dig out um, a little bit of a, an opening so you're not sitting on the snow and span across with um, some small uh, diameter relatively small diameter trees um, so you've got a bench to sit on as well and you're not sitting on this on the snow and then you can build a fire in front of it so there's lots of those things out there lots of ideas out there already in terms of creating raised seating other things not to not to forget about of course um your rucksack if you pack it in the way that most people tend to pack it with the sleeping bag and the, and the rest of your sleeping kit towards the bottom of your rucksack um you can just put your rucksack down on the ground and sit on the bottom end of it laid flat so you you'd sit on the part that goes against your back towards the bottom of the rucksack and that's going to be quite firm because it's going to have a compressed sleeping bag in it and you can sit on that as well clearly once you set your tarp or your hammock or whatever you're using up and put your sleeping bag in it that's not going to be an option available to you but if you're just staying somewhere overnight um, you might have taken your tarp out of the top of the sleeping bag uh, of the top of the rucksack rather set your tarp up leave everything else in your rucksack use that as a seat and then just before you go to bed pull out the sleeping bag pull out the other bits that you need and um, and you've got those there without too much fuss um, as well so that's another option um, piles of firewood you can sit on you know if you get a big pile of brash um, put that down um, sit down it's going to compress a bit but that can be quite comfortable and um, there's lots and lots of different things that you can do in that way um, using materials that you might be collecting anyway for various um, purposes or you could have them with you in terms of your kit so hopefully that gives you a few ideas and do check out that um, lean-to article on my blog I'll put a link in the show notes next question first aid and first aid kits this is from jack mccormack hi paul hope you're well my question today is regarding first aid and is somewhat broken up into two parts firstly how highly do you value first aid as a skill for bushcraft and the outdoors as a leader and instructor particularly on expeditions you must have been exposed to occasions where your skills have been essential and do you think enough people value these skills 
Well, I'll answer that bit first, Jack. Um, I value first aid skills very highly. Um, I think, as you say, as a leader and an instructor, it's part of the skill set I should have, certainly from a professional perspective. And it's certainly, I think, a skill set that most leaders and instructors these days do see as a really essential part of their repertoire of abilities to look after people in the outdoors and I think anybody that doesn't have a current uh, relevant first aid certification that is teaching any sort of bushcraft in the outdoors should take a long hard look at themselves and then when you look more widely at things like mountain leaders um, climbing instructors canoe leaders it's a requirement to get the certification for your leadership, whether it's mountain leader, canoe leader, you have to have a first aid certificate to get that award in the first place. So um, it's one of the prerequisites. So where there are national governing bodies um, that certify people to be leaders in certain areas of the outdoors, you'll find that they've got, as a matter of course, they've got first aid skills. Um, bushcraft is pretty unregulated. Um, personally, it's really high on my list. I make sure everyone who works with me has a current outdoor first aid certificate um, and I actually organise first aid training for my team at Frontier Bushcraft a lot more regularly than the minimum that we would need to to refresh under most guidelines which is every three years we tend to do refreshes and extra training a lot more regularly than that at least once a year where we, we, we refresh the basics and then we maybe add on something that we've not done before um, or look at things in different ways and we certainly practice scenarios where it's realistic um, so we're not in a classroom in a village hall and we're not being taught uh, first aid at work where we just have to put somebody in a comfortable position and then call an ambulance and wait for them to come to the office. That's not the type of first aid training that's relevant to the outdoors. It needs to be proper outdoor first aid training that is relevant to being in a remote setting. And here, um, I'm in a relatively remote setting, okay? I'm not in the middle of a vast wilderness, but I am uh, quite away from the nearest road. Um, there are some very rough forestry tracks in here that have been made by a forestry machine coming in to extract some, uh, some wood um, when they've been thinning out an area on the other side of here that I can see. But you'd never get a regular ambulance in here. You'd struggle to get a regular four-wheel drive in here. So um, it's a remote setting. And the, the, the situation here, if I were to injure myself or have a heart attack or a stroke or any of the things that affect people in day-to-day -day life, um, it's harder to get me out. It's harder to communicate with the emergency services. I might not have a signal on my phone. Those considerations need to come into your first aid training as well as the, the practicalities of how to deal with bleeding, how to deal with somebody who's not breathing, all of those things which are part of any basic um, life support and basic first aid course so all of that's very important and i think it's something that should be current and should be kept up to date and practiced regularly um, in terms of regular everyday people as opposed to instructors or guides so people who are not working professionally in the outdoors but who enjoy the outdoors i think you should have some basic outdoor first aid training as well because 
um, gives you a greater appreciation of some of the risks you face in the outdoors and it might change the way that you approach those risks if you think about the consequences a little bit in a little bit more detail it also gives you the ability to deal with situations to be able to look after yourself um, and also to be able to look after friends and companions and I think all of that's important it's a life skill at the end of the day that I think most people um, would benefit from having I can't really see a downside um, to spending the time and the money to get some basic first aid training and you can do a basic outdoor you know core outdoor first aid training in a couple of days it's, it's a weekend of your time and a few hundred pounds or a few hundred dollars depending on where you are to get a good uh, knowledge baseline knowledge that you can then build on going forwards and yes I have had to use first aid from time to time thankfully not very often in remote settings and it's invaluable um, Second part of your question. Um, I've read many of your articles on your pers personal first aid kit. Do you carry a larger one on expeditions when you are leading or require participants to carry a, first, uh, a set first aid kit? Do you carry first aid kit when practicing your bushcraft skills on a short overnight or day hike? And if so, what do you carry? Many thanks, Jack. Um, well, there's quite a lot of little questions in there, Jack. I think there's more than two but they're all good ones. Um, so, yes, I do generally carry a first aid kit. Um, the standard one that I have as a personal first aid kit is the one that's on my blog, and you can find that very easily, and I'm sure that's the one you're referring to. Um, I don't vary it massively from that as a personal first aid kit for travel, and it's also something that I can easily throw in a, in a day pack um, if I'm out and about. Um, even if I don't have that with me, for example, I might be just nipping out into the woods for a few hours, I will carry a first aid kit that's appropriate to the tools. You know, you mentioned bushcraft skills in particular. I always carry a cuts kit whenever I have a knife on me. And that cuts kit, I've mentioned it in an article somewhere. I don't think I've ever done an article on it specifically, and maybe I should. But basically what's in there are just things to deal with the type of cuts that you get from using knives. Um, or just handling materials in the outdoors, small burns, that type of thing. So I've got gauze in there, I've got good quality um, band-aids or elastoplast, whatever you want to call them. I've got some steri strips in there, I've got small bandage, I've got tape. Um, and I also tend to put some analgesics in there as well. Um, as I've mentioned before in other places and on, on podcasts and ask Paul Kirtley's, um, if you get a real bad thumping headache due to dehydration, caffeine withdrawals or whatever situation you can think of in the outdoors um, it can really affect your thinking and your um, ability to get things done quickly if every time your heart beat comes up you're getting a pounding in your head I like having some headache pills in my first aid kit that is always in my pocket and that's the cuts kit um, so that's something I put in there as well and that's all put into a waterproof uh, A-lock sack or lock sack, as they're now known. And, they, and that works very well. And I will try and remember where that's mentioned. I think it's in one of my modular kit articles um, that it's mentioned. But certainly I'll probably do something separate on that. Um, I think it's worthwhile. I'll add that to my list. But that's, that's what I've got, a cuts kit. I've always got a cuts kit. Whether or not I put that first personal first aid kit in, I might put it if I'm on 
a long day hike, I'll put it in. If I'm on an over, overnight hike or I'm traveling further afield, I'll definitely put that more elaborate first aid kit in, more substantial first aid kit, which is detailed on my blog. And as I say, I'll link in the show notes if you've never seen that before. Um, so if you're listening or watching this uh, session, you can go over to episode 59 and find the link in the list of links and, and have a look at that. Um, and also what's really good about the article, because it's been there for a number of years, is that other people have made suggestions. One of the things I asked is, what would you add to this? What do you carry? What do you think is a good addition to what I've got here? What are your thoughts? Um, and there's a load of comments there from people um, about what they, uh, what they have um, as well. A couple of good ideas there um, for anybody that wants to look, whatever perspective you're coming from. Um, so that's that. Um, other part of the question, do I carry a more substantial or more elaborate or larger kit for expeditions? Yes, I do. We also have one on courses. Um, so in our base camp, we have a, uh, a large first aid kit, which has some repetition in it, of course, so that you're not running out of things. You know, if you're redressing a cut or what have you, you've got enough supplies. But then we've got um, additional items in there as well. I've never... Uh, written an article on that I know that for sure I'm not going to itemize that off the top of my head here because I would no doubt forget something that's in there um, and then I'd have to correct it so again I will make a note to try and write something about that at some point I'll make a small video on that and um, but yes we do a lot of it is is kind of what's in that personal kit but more of um, and one of the other things I didn't mention that I tend to carry if I'm using an axe, for example, as well as a cuts kit, I'll take a large wound dressing. There is a large wound dressing in my personal kit, um, but even if I don't have that, if I'm, uh, if I'm just got my cuts kit and I've got some larger tools, or actually if I'm in the mountains, because you get rock falls and things, I just generally put an Israeli bandage or a similar military bandage that's got a waterproof dressing, um, waterproof outer on the dressing. That goes in the top of my day pack and then it's just there, um, it's just there for when I need it in the top of the pack. And that's before I get to anything, any other first aid kit that I might have. On expeditions, yes, we have a larger kit that's got extra supplies. It's got various drugs in there, painkillers, various other things, things, maybe antihistamines, maybe Imodium, maybe um, uh, stronger painkillers than you might carry just in day-to-day -day, uh, life, etc., etc. So um, that's something I can maybe elaborate on in future. But yes, I do. And we have a similar kit, although not quite. So we don't have a dental repair kit in our course uh, first aid kit, for example, but in our expedition kit we do. And the expedition kit is basically built from the course kit that we always have with us. So it's the same system that we're familiar with. Anybody that works with me can go and get that kit and know what's in there. And then for expeditions, as I say, we add some extra things in because we're more remote again. And that's in, that's in addition to other things like having a satellite phone so that if we need to contact um, a doctor to speak to them, um, not necessarily to get a rescue, but if we need to speak to a medical professional or get some advice on somebody who's got um, particular signs and symptoms, then we can uh, we can speak to them as well. Um, so that's an additional piece of important equipment we take on an expedition. Um, in terms of, and then the other part of the question um, was, do I ask people to bring their own kits? Yeah, I do. I tend to ask people to bring a cuts kit so that 
they've got their own supplies, plasters, tape, that sort of thing that we already talked about um, for their own day-to-day -day things. So that if they, if they do have a little nick, they get a splinter, they can remove it with some tweezers. That type of small kit is good to have. Um, and then it doesn't need me to do that for them and they're not kind of beholden to me. They can just sort themselves out, you know, as an adult, um, there's nothing wrong with doing that, of course. So I generally have people on courses as well, just bring a small first aid kit that they can deal with day-to-day -day things. And then we've got the bigger kit there if we need it to back that up if they run out of um, any supplies or if we need to deal with a more serious incident. And that's, that's that kind of tiered approach which works well. Cuts kit and a, and a big bandage and then a personal kit and an expedition kit. And if everyone's got at least a cuts kit, then you're quite well supplied in addition to whatever course or expedition kit you've got as well. And that's that. Hopefully that answers the question. A couple of to-dos for me there as well. Um, and don't forget to check out the links in the show notes there at episode 59. Right, thanks Jack. Next question. Little spider crawling on me. Keeping track of your speed on hikes. This is from Rutger. Hi Paul, love your show. Having walked the High Coast Trail in Sweden recently, I have found out that during my during the day, my estimate for my speed was all over the place. Due to terrain differences and getting tired, the markers on the track allowed me to correct this, but if they aren't there, is there a reliable way of keeping track of your speed? Terrain conditions such as inclines, rubble tracks, and dense forestation can make pace counting and the like unreliable. Kind regards, Rutger. Yeah, there's, there's again, there's quite a lot of little bits in there. Um, fundamentally though, what you want to be doing is, um, so you've mentioned keeping track of your speed. Um, Yes, but I think you should also be predicting your speed. You should be working out how long it's going to take you to cover a certain section. And you can do that on the day, of course, but personally, if you're planning a hike, you should probably be doing that before you even leave the comfort of your home or your, your office, wherever you're planning your trip. Um, you can do that with the aid of a map. Um, you don't need to be on the ground to work out how long it's going to take or approximate how long it's going to take. You can do that by looking at a map. And there are a number of different methodologies of doing that. Um, simple arithmetic will get you to an answer that is quite accurate. Um, there is a rule called Naismith's rule, um, and that's quite uh, useful as a starting point. It's a rule of thumb. It's a rule of approximation that you can use to try and work out how long a certain uh, section, particularly in undulating terrain, is going to take you. Um, and it was originally um, posed in terms of miles per hour in feet, um, but we can look at it in more um, metric terms and i think that's useful because most maps that you get even in the uk even though we've got miles per hour still on our road signs and uh, distances are measured in miles when you pick a an ordnance survey map up the same as you pick a map up in sweden or you pick a map up in canada um, 
the grid squares are generally kilometer squares and um, it's generally a metric grid system that you're using the distances that you're measuring are in meters or kilometers the heights are measured in meters above sea level so it's a metric system so i think it's most useful these days to remember it in terms of um, meters and kilometers so basically if you work on the basis that on the flat you're going to walk with a rucksack you're going to walk five kilometers per hour five kilometers an hour on the flat so any kilometer distance on the map is going to take you um, 12 minutes if you want to think of it that way um, and you're going to cover five kilometers in 60 minutes and then if there is um, terrain undulating terrain then you make an adjustment for ascent so for going uphill we all know going uphill is slower than walking on the flat so it's going to slow you down so you add time based on how much ascent there is and basically you add um, an hour per 600 meters um, clearly you're not always doing 600 meters in one climb so you can break that down and say that you're going to add um, so it's going to take you 60 minutes extra for 600 meters so it's going to take you 10 minutes extra for 100 meters or it's going to take you one minute extra for 10 meters if you want to think of it that way so you can basically you can look at the contour lines on your map on the on the route that you're walk, walking you can add up the total ascent and then you can multiply that by that factor and um, that it's going to take you an extra amount of time and then you can add that onto your 5k an hour and that gives you a good rule of thumb um, it's not terrain that requires scrambling um, and it's not terrain that requires really tricky descents. Um, the assumption is that you walk at a fairly decent pace going downhill. Once you get to really, really, really steep ground going downhill, clearly then you're gonna slow down um, below your normal walking pace. So there are other adjustments that some people do for certain types of terrain to add for a descent um, and also climbing really, really super steep ground. Um, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about regular hiking terrain um, that's a really good rule of thumb. 5k an hour plus an extra hour for every 600 meters climbed. Um, that's that's going to give you a good approximation and you can plan that out um, before you leave home so you can work out how far you're going to get each day and then you can work out how many hours of walking um, and that's about the minimum it's going to take you. Of course then if you're going to get tired maybe you need to add a little bit more on that's an adjustment that's a personal thing it depends on your level of physical fitness if you don't think you can walk for eight hours at that pace maybe you either choose to walk less each day or maybe you choose to make an adjustment for uh, walking a little bit slower maybe you decide that on average you're going to walk 4k an hour so back to the original question when you said keeping track what you should do is try to keep some records of what how, how much weight you were carrying um what distance on what, what horizontal distance you covered and what your total ascent was and what the timings on that were and then you can start to get to an approximation that is specific to you and then you can use that in place of the of the naismith rule and clearly as your fitness changes that might change a little bit 
um, but it won't be far off, it won't be far off. Um, over shorter distances, um, it will work reasonably well. You mentioned pace counting as well. Pace counting works quite well over short distances, but I wouldn't do pace counting all day, every day. You want to be able to think about other things. You want to be looking around at the nature. You want to be thinking walking is good, kind of almost meditation time, or it allows your, your creative thoughts to come to the fore. Um, and you don't want to be counting your steps all day, every day. It's very, very useful for navigating on a bearing in low visibility, in the dark, in the clouds, in a snowstorm. But just generally, you want to be using timing um, more, more readily. And once you get to a point where you know how long it's going to take you to cover a certain distance, you can just use your watch. In terms of keeping track of your speed, whether or not you're going to working at the pace you think you're working, you should be doing that from your map reading. Yeah, you don't need markers on the side of the track to tell you where you are. You should be able to do that with your map work um, and the terrain. And if you can't do that, if you can't keep track of where you are, um, then I would I would get some navigation training because that's one of the fundamental. Um, fundamental jobs of navigation and um, it's about the way that you don't get lost is by keeping track of where you are and by keeping track of where you are you can work out how far you've come in combination with um, keeping track of time that allows you to work out your speed speed and timing and distance clearly are all related in that manner so watch map that should allow you to keep track of how fast you're going and you can compare that to your approximations using that Naismith rule which you can do before you even leave. You can write down in your notebook um, how far you think each day's um, going to be, how, how long you think it's going to take. You can break it down into, into um, legs as well from A to B. This type of terrain it's going to take this long from B to C. This type of terrain it's going to take this type of long and build your days up that way so that you're not walking too far or trying to walk too far in a day okay storing compasses so another one about navigation really in a way um, this is from peter and peter asks hey paul quick question how do you best store compasses with regards to preserving their proper magnetization both long term at home and when out and about how much of an issue is it really and can you do anything to fix things after they've gone awry all the best peter in belgium um, well peter i think the main thing to do with a compass is keep it away from strong magnets um, the biggest source of magnetism at home really these days um now that we now that we don't have cathode ray tube televisions which had strong magnets in them um i'd still keep them away from electronics i'd keep them away from loud speakers so hi-fi speakers computer uh if you've got any computer speakers or anything anything with a microphone uh, with a with a loudspeaker in um keep them away from that keep them away from microwave ovens keep it away from um, anything that is magnetized intentionally or unintentionally um, so large pieces of metal uh, got a bit of wind and rain squally shower coming through now so you might hear that on the mic um, yeah big magnets at home put it in a drawer um, keep it keep it a reasonable temperature um, doesn't want to be frozen clearly because it's got liquid in it 
Um, I know that wasn't specific about your question to do with magnetization, but it's to do with storing it. You want to keep it at room temperature um, and, uh, and you don't really want it to be massively subjected to massive pressures either because you can get bubbles. Um, so you don't want it to be in a depressurized uh, place. So I would always take my compass as hold luggage on a flight as opposed to putting it in, sorry, <laughs> exact opposite of what I just said. I'd always take it as cabin baggage, not as hold luggage. Um, you don't want it in the hold because that may not be quite pressurized as much, particularly on uh, regional flights, it might not be pressurized as much as the cabin and therefore you want to make sure that it's not getting bubbles in it that way. Um, by um, being subjected to varying pressures, uh, keep it in your cabin package um, and uh, that's going to help. Um, keep it away, so keep it away from mobile phones. Um, certainly mobile phone in a, in a pocket, jacket pocket, if you put your compass near to it, it will affect the needle. Um, GPS units, some trekking poles have got steel in them um, or steel components in them so you can be holding a trekking pole and your compass and that can affect things. Um, I've seen people um, get to a fence line so there might be somewhere here there will be on the edge of this forest there'll be a deer fence. Um, the amount of metal in the fencing can affect the compass if you're standing near it. So just be aware of metal objects around you and electronics around you or on you when you're using your compass and when you're storing your compass, keep it away from strong magnets, keep it at a decent temperature, not too hot, not too cold, and keep it at a, at a decent normal one atmosphere pressure if you can, whenever you can, and um, you should be good. Next question, avoiding midges. This is from Russell Joyce via Twitter. Um, he says, you talked of midges in a recent video. Got any good tips on avoiding or dealing with them? Um, midges in particular. Yeah, well, uh, myself and the guys and girls who work with me at Frontier did actually put together a blog article on the Frontier Bushcraft blog um, answering uh, the more general question of how to deal with biting insects and other creepy crawlies in the outdoors and what we do in different parts of the world when we're doing different things and I'll certainly link to that in the show notes um, about midges in particular. I'm in Scotland at the moment, um, I'm not being bothered by midges now, um, it's past that time of year. Where I'm sitting where I am now in June or July I think I would be um, getting nibbled um, certainly in this mossy damp um, woodland um, there's a bit of a breeze today which always helps so choosing breezy campsites is the first thing try and choose somewhere that's got a wind blowing through it because that's going to help keep the midges away um, smoky fires can help but there's a there's a clearly another consideration there as to whether or not having a fire is appropriate whether it it's suitable um, for what you're doing and all of those things so generally windy campsite if you can, um, 
clothing um, that they're not going to bite through. Now midges aren't like mozzies, they won't tend to bite through thin clothing. So as long as your skin's covered, um, they're not going to be able to bite you. On your hands, you could wear thin leather gloves and on your head, you can wear a midgy head net. And I find midgy nets are much more comfortable and acceptable if you wear like a bush hat, like a boonie hat that has a rim around the outside. So it just takes the gauze netting away from your face um, and that's just a kind of comfort irritation thing um, at the end of the day I'd rather have a midge net than not have a midge net um, I find the worst thing in midge season is just cooking a meal you know on a gas stove you're trying to you know even cooking a quick meal um, the midges find you and they're going up your nose and they're in your ear and they're getting your eyes and it's just unpleasant and so just having the midge net just while you're doing those jobs that keep you in one place outside of your tent um, helps a lot and a midge net just squashes down to nothing and goes in the pocket so that's what I'd recommend um, it, it's, it's no more simple than that and if you really 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 don't want to go out in midge season then just go out at other times of the year. But it's not the end of the world. You just have to have a few, a few things. Head net, light gloves, windy campsite. That's it. And probably a tent. You don't want to be tarping. Um, I've bivvied with bivvy bags in mid-season in, in places like Glencarron and Torridon and places. Um, used a double hoop bivvy bag years ago. And while your, your um, safe from the midges in the in the bivvy bag um, because it's so small um, you're either out the bag and having to uh, run around to avoid them or you're in the bag lying down which is fine if you want to sleep but um, if you just want to sit down in the evening or what have you I think a tent is a much better option um, you can you know a, a one person tent or a two person tent depending on how many of you there are in your group um, these days doesn't weigh very much much lighter than 20 years ago um, you know what my double, double hoop bivvy bag weighed 20 years ago my Hilleberg Acto 10 that I use now weighs about the same um, so I've got a one-person tent which gives me enough room to sit in I can change I can read um, I can do all of those things I can relax in there away from the midges um, whereas in a bivvy bag it starts getting quite claustrophobic um, at, or you're out with the midges so I wouldn't be tarping with a bivvy I'd be in a tent in midge country unusual growth on leaves and this is a is this Instagram or is this Twitter this is Twitter this is a question from Twitter from Muddy Paws and there's a number of pictures there of leaves with um, little, almost like grains of rice-sized uh, uh, protrusions coming out the top and the bottom of the leaf. And the question is, hi Paul, I have seen these growths on the leaves of this tree and I don't know what they are. Any ideas? Yeah, they're eggs of some description of some sort of insect. I don't know what species, I have to say, um, but they are eggs of an insect um, and I'm sure other people out there who have a greater knowledge of different insect species will be able to tell us what they are so please um, under the video where, wherever you're watching this please leave a comment to let us know what they are um, 
but that's what they are. And you, you, you see them particularly in the spring and the summer, you will see these on a number of different uh, tree species, different colors, um, but it's not an uncommon sight. I don't know what particular species that one is though, in terms of the insect. Another question, this one is from Instagram, from Andrew Casey. Ribwort plantain is a picture of the flowers of that species. And he says, uh, could you please explain from start to finish of when to collect the seed, how to process them and how to cook them ready for consumption. Many thanks for all your hard work. Um, yeah, so they're not ready in the photo there that you've posted, Andrew, and they're still in flower. The seeds will form um, after the flowering on those seed heads. And when they're ripe, they'll come off quite easily and you'll get fine little black seeds. You'll get the uh, casings as well and you can winnow them and to just retain the seeds. And then um, to eat them, you can do a number of things. Um, you can grind them down into a flour uh, and in the field you could do that on a flat stone with a couple of small flat stones. It's quite time consuming for the amount of food value you're going to get from that but that is something you can do. Um, you can make a simple biscuit by if you get enough flour you add some once you've ground it down a bit and the reason you want to grind them down a bit is to make the in inside parts of the seed more available to your digestive enzymes if you eat whole seeds they tend to go straight through you and without being too graphic you only need to eat like a multi-grain uh, slice of bread um, and <laughs> look at what comes out the other end to see the number of seeds and you know sweet corn is another classic example it goes straight through you without your body being able to digest um, so unless you really, really chew it up. So what you're doing with the grinding is making sure that it's all chewed up before it goes into your mouth. And that's why we grind seeds into flowers so we can access the nutrients better. So you're gonna grind it up, flat stone, mortar and pestle at home you could do, you could do um, to get that fine flour. And it's quite tasty, it's a little bit peppery. Um, it adds good, you can add it to soups um, in, in, uh, in a reasonable quantity to give it some uh, thickening and to give it some uh, to give it some flavor and to give it some extra calorific value, some carbohydrate. It's also quite high in mucilage, which is good for the, good for the stomach. And you can, you can do that. You can make little uh, patties um, and roast them on a rock next to a fire. So if you had absolutely nothing, you could collect the, the plantain seeds in quantity, winnow them, grind them down, um, add some water, put them on a warm rock. And I've done that on exercises where we've been living off the land. Um, it's, it's, a lot, it's quite a lot of work, but it's quite a nice result. You get like a little biscuit um, that, you can, that you can kind of nibble on and it's not a bad flavor. Or as I say, you can add it into other things. The other thing that I've done with it with mixed results um, is something that was recommended to me is once you've got the seeds, um, grind them a bit and then uh, dry, fry them in the bottom of a billy can if you've got one or bottom of a metal mug and then add that into um, a, a soup or a stew or something um, and it, with the aim of releasing a bit more nutrition. Um, the first time I tried it, I overdid the heat and I basically charred the, uh, the, the, the flour. I didn't really realize because it's quite dark colored anyway, it's quite a dark brown color. 
and I didn't realize that I charred it. I added it to this soup that we made and it tasted of charcoal. It didn't taste very good at all. Um, and that's all we had to eat. So we ate it anyway, but it wasn't great. Um, so yeah, do be careful about charring the flour, but that's, that's it basically. It's like any seed. Um, when it's ready to come off the seed head they'll come off very readily winnow them grind them and then use them in any way that you'd normally use flour you could try adding them to a bannock even if you wanted to mix it with wheat flour and um, that's something you could do if you wanted to bolster some basic rations that you might have with you so hopefully that helps and have a have a play with that and let me know how you get on all right cheers i think that's it we've rattled through a number of questions there yeah we've all seven we have done so thank you very much to those questions um to the people who asked those questions and hopefully the answers to those were useful and interesting to you if you've got any comments on my answers or those questions please uh, go to my blog at, at paulkirtley.co.uk find episode 59 of ask paul kirtley and leave a comment under the episode uh, you can see this episode on youtube uh, you can listen to it on itunes the apple podcasting app on uh, other platforms as well podcast platforms and you can see the video and listen to the audio directly via my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk as well and there is a separate rss feed for each of my podcasts so for the Paul Kirtley podcast and the Ask Paul Kirtley podcast and um, there's a separate RSS feed in addition to the RSS feed for my blog so if you want to subscribe to them that way you can do as well please choose the method that you wish to subscribe and please subscribe and if you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube and you're not already subscribed to my YouTube channel please subscribe to my YouTube channel. It helps the visibility of my videos. The more subscribers I have, and um, it helps you see my videos as soon as they come out because they'll come up in your feed. And it's really appreciated if I, I am aiming to do a few more videos in the coming year. Um, I've got some plans of, for things to do with YouTube videos. So if you're not already subscribed to my YouTube channel, please go to uh, YouTube, dot uh, com forward slash paul kirtley or you can actually just type in paulkirtley.tv and that will redirect to my youtube channel paulkirtley.tv and that will go straight to my youtube channel please subscribe lovely to have you there as well if you're not already there and i will be putting out some interesting youtube videos in addition of course to the ask paul kirtley so um you know it'd be good that you see those if you're interested Thank you very much for your support. Thank you very much for your interest. I am going to uh, continue with my walk now, circle back to where I started while the weather remains good, enjoying these lovely Scots pine forest. There are clumps of heather here, uh, sphagnum moss. There are blayberries and lingon, although there's no berries now, they're all finished, but um, the leaves are here. It's lovely uh, woodland of this type and I'm going to enjoy that uh, for the rest of the day. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And I will catch you on episode 60, the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Take care.